This is The Conversation on Hawaii Public Radio. I'm Catherine Cruz. China, North Korea, and Russia, they're said to be the biggest threats to the U.S. and security and peace in the Pacific region. Retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dan Leaf is a past deputy commander and acting commander of the uh, U.S. Pacific Command. He, along with Major General Howard Dallas Thompson, penned a paper warning of nuclear blackmail, a paradigm shift on the landscape. Here's General Leaf. It's important because it's a fundamental shift in the approach to nuclear weapons. And uh, Major General Retired Dallas Thompson and I were working on a paper that wasn't about nuclear blackmail, but examining the landscape, we decided this is really the issue that has to be addressed. Why is this different? I mean, this concept of nuclear blackmail, I mean, it just sounds like, mm-hmm. you know, as opposed to I have a I have a bigger gun than you or I have more guns than you. Yeah. It, it just sounds like you've got teams ganging up on one side against another. That is certainly part of the potential and part of what drew Dallas and I to be compelled to write about it. But it's a fundamental shift in the approach to nuclear weapons for the major powers, not including North Korea in that collection. The nuclear states have long been at a pretty stable standoff because it was the use of nuclear weapons was viewed as a mutually assured destruction. And that was, of course, the term applied to it because we both lose our existence as countries and people. And that standoff was relatively stabilizing. There are still regional wars, but the superpowers didn't get to it. In recent couple of years, it's been a shift in the rhetoric to threats to use nuclear weapons on a limited blackmail as a form of rhetoric. And that's accompanied by improved capability by Russia, China, and North Korea to do exactly that. And we have been watching uh, North Korea with their test missiles and, you know, the the range is getting Mm -hmm. longer and longer. They've been targeting areas, you know, near Japan and Guam. And Korea is your kind of area of expertise. It is. And that's my area of obsession because the standoff there is both dangerous and tragic. Tragic for the common people in North Korea and dangerous for the entire world. As a native of Guam, Catherine, you, you know that Guam is certainly threatened by North Korean weapons. And the missile false alarm a few years ago in Hawaii tells us that Hawaii is threatened and that we take that threat seriously. But that was North Korea's a rogue nation. Now with Russia's rhetoric, some of China's rhetoric and the combined capability, along with improved relationships between all three of those countries, they make the threat real. And they present the potential that one or more of those countries could extort their will by saying, hey, we're going to nuke, and I'll just say Guam, as an example, if you don't allow us free reign with regard to Taiwan, the South China Sea, South Korea. That's a situation the U.S. and the rest of the world cannot afford. And we are busy helping Ukraine while we're very busy, you know, with our attention turned over there on that part of the world. You know, what happens if China invades Taiwan? That's a difficult problem. Clearly, Ukraine is occupying the spotlight right now, uh, but we should recognize that the invasion of Ukraine represents a failure of U.S. and NATO deterrence. Now, I'm not uh, assessing blame. This has been an issue that's percolated for several years, but its deterrence failed there. We can't afford, with regard to nuclear blackmail, for our deterrence to fail. And deterrence is a very difficult topic. There's an article recently that says, deterrence 
alternative is not rocket science, it's more difficult. And that's true. But we have to shift our deterrent thinking to include the potential for limited use nuclear blackmail and not just the global standoff between superpowers or great powers or big nuclear powers, however you want to define it. As the uh, tensions were escalating with Russia and Ukraine, we were we were told to be on the alert you know, for cyber attacks. But what other security risks should we be aware of? The issue of cyber attacks and other non-traditional military attacks, those are all real and they need to be addressed. And I'm confident that our Defense Department and the military components are looking at them. And we have looked at missile defense, looked at and invested in missile defense. But all of that has been done in this different paradigm than, we, than Dallas Thompson, I believe, currently exists. So they need the DOD and the national security community need to really look at the concept of deterrence and defense and response in the framework of potential nuclear blackmail. A new threat means we need, for example, more capable and flexible missile defense because it's not just a rogue North Korea. It could be Russia. It could be China. It could be a combination. So this is very complicated, Catherine said, but the shift requires a renewed look at how we deter, defend, and respond. A credible missile defense doesn't just provide defense. It decreases the likelihood of attack. So there are many efforts going on, like the next generation interceptor. That's a competition between providers, companies, and the competition has been extended by the DOD to get the best answer. Competition is good. That's an example of things going right. But in other areas, defense community still tends to look in silos or stovepipes or whatever term for, you know, we'll look at this element, the space sensing system, and this element, the ground sensing system, et cetera. We need to do these in an integrated effort. We need integrated capability and sensing and command and control and all that to be as responsive as necessary. And the other thing, Catherine, that, that I think is clear is this is a very rapid shift in the nuclear paradigm. And we can't treat it as business as usual. That doesn't mean we should panic, but we need an accelerated analysis of the geographic and capability gaps that this new paradigm presents. And we need to address them quickly. Well, the president has in the, what, 2023 budget, $800 million for the defense of Guam. Mm-hmm. And then DOD right. has another one point six for a, what is it? It's called the Next Generation Interceptor Program. So it's basically... Yeah, the program that I spoke of. Right. So as far as citing these programs, I mean, where are we talking about? You know, because we've heard a lot of discussion about the radar systems that they were proposing here. And then there was a, you know, back and forth about what we really need and, and if we need to pivot in another direction. But yeah, talk about that. Well, I think philosophically or intellectually, we need to pivot to include collective nuclear blackmail through limited use, not just by North Korea. I don't know that that will lead to different systems, radars, missiles, interceptors, but it may lead to increased emphasis on integration, on cross-service, on joint solutions, and on rapid deployment. Uh, the, The key really is to recognize this change and assess it. I don't know what that assessment will mean. And I don't because deterrence and the 
long-term measures are as complex as they get. The Manhattan Project is the epitome of putting our best minds to an issue and creating nuclear weapons. But what's underappreciated is how many great minds were put to the aftermath to establishing a stable world based on mutually assured destruction, which, horrible as it sounds, did provide stability. We need to put our best minds to both the theoretical and technical answers to the shift in the nuclear paradigm. It's going to take executive branch leadership, congressional oversight, not just support, but oversight and support, a prioritization, and then, of course, investment. And there is a lot of, if you were to do an internet search on arms race, you find there's a lot of talk about a new arms race. We are going to have to invest more, but the investment should be as much as possible in capabilities that produce stability, not instability, and defensive measures like missile defense are more likely to do that. For comparison, you talked about roughly $2 billion between next generation interceptor and, and the defense of Guam. Uh, we should recognize that the fail, failure of deterrence is more costly. We're pouring at least $50 billion in the conflict in Ukraine after deterrence failed. We can't do that in the case of, of nuclear blackmail. We, additionally, we need to recognize two different kind of costs. Mutually assured destruction meant basically nuclear winter, the end of perhaps of humanity as we know it. Um, nuclear blackmail could lead to a different kind of end of our world by eroding and perhaps eliminating the rules-based order. If we allow, allow one of the autocratic countries and leaders to dictate terms on a major global issue like the South China Sea or the future of Europe, then the rules-based order that has provided the, the petri dish for human development for decades is effectively gone. We can't afford that either. So I would like to see Congress delve into the shift in the nuclear paradigm because that congressional oversight and support is important, and for that they need to understand it and agree or disagree. So I'd be happy to talk to Congress about it if mm -hmm. they're interested. Yeah, and, and so I, I just was, was wondering about that. Since you gents are retired, you know, I don't know how much— I don't know, pull, if that's the word, but how often you talk with, the, with you know, PACOM or Indo-PACOM? Well, we have, uh, you know, we have contact, and I mm -hmm. stay out of the business of my old family, my <laughs> okay. old Hanukkahs, uh, but we do interact with several of the leaders, and sometimes they're interested in our opinion. We've got some great leadership here, mm -hmm. but again, I, I think that Dallas and I, by analyzing the rhetoric, the relationships, the changing relationships between mm -hmm. Russia, China, Russia, North Korea, Russia, China, North Korea, and the expanded capability. I haven't talked much about how impressive the gains by both Russia and China specifically are, but we think we're on to something, and we'd be happy to share that. I haven't found that anybody's viewed this change the same way that Dallas Thompson and I have. Yeah. We're not brilliant. We just care a lot about the future of our country and world. That was retired Air Force Lieutenant General Dan Leith, who we talked to this morning. He was outlining the threat of nuclear blackmail to security and peace in the Pacific. Look for links to the paper that was just uh, put out on our website later today.
This is The Conversation on statewide member-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Coming up, your backyard quiz. Onihoa, olehua, onihau, okaua, oahu, omolokai, olanai, omau, okaholabe, ohavai. It is summertime, and we're thinking about a delicious frozen treat. If you've been to Oahu's North Shore in the last few years, you might have seen someone enjoying a cup of Dole Whip. The soft-serve dairy-free dessert was created by the Dole Food Company, which has deep roots in our islands. James Dole started his Hawaiian Pineapple Company in 1901, which he used to turn pineapples into a staple across the U.S. Now, Dole Whip was first introduced at the National Restaurant Association show in 1984. Today, it's sold just about everywhere around the world, and it's especially popular at Disney parks. Uh, Though pineapple production has largely moved out of our state, surprisingly, the Dole Whip factory is located right here on Oahu. But it it hasn't always been that way. Dole Whip, originally called Dole Pineapple Whip, got its start somewhere else. So for today's Backyard Quiz, we want to know where it was first created. Call 808-941-3689 on Oahu or 877-941-3689 if you know the answer. The first one to get it right gets a reusable tote bag that tells people you got it right. Support for the Backyard Quiz comes from Neweet Hawaii, which is committed to supporting nonprofits dedicated to providing workforce housing for growing families, such as the Kauai Housing Development Corporation. NeweetHawaii.com. Call centers, big corporations use them, and chances are you were on the line with the worker from the Philippines recently. Think about an eight or nine hour day with no bathroom breaks. The outsourced service by global companies use cheap labor in in countries like the Philippines and India. This week, a labor activist uh, is in Honolulu as part of a multi-city stop to talk about the reality of working in a call center overseas. Uh, Marine Cavalona is president of the group BN. It stands for BPO Industry Employees Network. It's an association, but it has no bargaining power. Uh, Cavalona is meeting with local labor leaders to discuss the workplace situation in her homeland. BPO means business process outsourcing. Basically, it's uh, a specific job is being outsourced to a third party. And this time, because... A third party can be located outside the country, so it's like an agency, but they are contracting the business or the specific job to someone in the in the Philippines. Yeah, so these are call centers essentially for global companies. Correct. We have about three hundred to four hundred call center companies in the Philippines who contracts job to big companies like Amazon like Google, Facebook, 
Apple, Telecom Companies, AT&T, Verizon, T-Mobile, Sprint, Financial, Retailers like Macy's, Walmart, and other big companies. But that's just, I mean, here in the U.S., there's also companies from Australia, from United Kingdom, from New Zealand, just name it, and it's all there in the Philippines. So essentially, you provide this service, but uh, talk about the, the conditions. There's a misconception for BPO workers like me that we are in a better position compared to workers from other industries. But we basically call ourselves BPO. We're in- invincible. Why? Because we have to work even if it's raining and flooding, even if there's earthquake even if there's ashfall. And the reason for that is it's against our metric. We can't go and absent because they need to ensure that, you know, someone would pick up the phone to answer the calls to ensure that there's a specific, I mean, the service level is, you know, is met. And uh, because that's for big companies, that's profit for these call center companies or BPO companies. Right, there's a demand for that service. Exactly. As a matter of fact, we have about 1.3 million Filipino workers in this industry, and we are the second largest taxpayer. And basically, the Philippine economy relies heavily on this industry. Last year, we have generated 29 billion U.S. dollars, considering the pandemic. And we're still working at home, and the facilities is not so efficient. So can you imagine that? And this is the reason also the government wants us to go back on site so that, you know, it's to basically stimulate also the economy because we are... We're the one who, you know, will be the one to, to revive basically the small and medium industries without considering the condition of the workers. So if you'd ask the condition, we have flexible labor. Our salary entry level is 250 to $350 U.S. dollars a month. And that's even less if you bring the business to the province. That's 200 to 300 just hand-to-mouth condition. And, and how many hours are you working? Eight to nine hours, basically. Every day? Every day, five days a week, 40 hours. And, of course, one of the main issues also that we're here is to, because we need to share or we need to ensure that, you know, our condition is being heard because I, I don't think no one knew about call center or call center industry in the Philippines. It's a largely non-unionized industry, so we don't have any union, we don't have any bargaining power. We try to, we are organized, we basically, BIEN is a labor association, but we don't have any bargaining capability. So you can do what you can to raise your voice to say, hey, this is wrong, we need bathroom breaks, um, this is wrong, we need you know, a lunch break or, or whatever, but you don't have the working, the labor contract. That is correct. We have campaigns to like make sure that we have, I mean, they would follow or they would allow bathroom breaks. In the past, we pushed for like, because there's adherence. And if, for example, you log out on the call, on the phone, because you need to go to the restroom, they don't allow it. It's against you. It's against your performance or your metric. And your metric basically will say how, how much you will get paid or incentive or your 
appraisal or if you can get terminated if you're not passing the metric. So we push for, it's actually like let it flow (laughs) so that we could have bathroom breaks freely. And then, of course, the flex labor. I mean, whenever they need us, they would order, they would mandate for us to go to work. But if not, then they could just, you know, let us do on voluntary time off. And again, this work is no work, no pay. So if it's voluntary time off and you don't have any vacation leave, you're not paid for that day. But most of the time, we feel like we're overseas Filipino workers because even if it's holiday or during Christmas time, because we work on shift and 12 midnight is basically like a big thing for Filipinos to celebrate, uh, you know, holiday with families. Uh, We're at work working because we need to service. We need to, you know, take on calls. And so you're here to raise the awareness of people across the country. Uh, Basically, yes. And because... As I mentioned earlier, the industry is non-unionized. And for us that, you know, risking our lives with unionizing, as we all know, in the, the labor movement is being attacked in the Philippines. Our organizing started 2011. About 2018, 2017, the organization is being red tagged. Red tagging uh, is like labeling of someone to be like a communist terrorist front. I've been a call center employee since 2010. And now it's 2022, but this red tagging, in, uh, you know, um, in issue is being systematically attached to Bien since 2018. And because I think because of the issues that we're pursuing, we've been lobbying for the BPO labor agenda, which pushes for rights and welfare, which demands for the government to and the companies to respect our right to organize. We push for the standardization of uh, the wages because it's been, you know, going down and we were pushing for like 25000 across the board, which would be about $500 to $600. Which is basically just, you know, enough. This is just to to live decently. And that's a month. That's a month. It's just to live decently for, for a Filipino like me living in, in Manila or living in other areas in the Philippines. Again, the government basically has been demonizing, you know, organizations like us. They've been red tagging us. Uh, they have red tagged me and the rest of our my colleagues in the organization as communist terrorist recruiter. They've even mentioned Bien, our organization, as a communist terrorist front. And they have also arrested one of our coordinators uh, way back 2019. She's still on bail. The case has not been heard even from 2019 when they first filed a case against her. The case is illegal possession of firearms. Can you imagine she's just, I'm I'm 4'11", she's about 4'10", she has six kids and when she was arrested, the house where she was in was raided, they planted guns. And she has two-year-old kid. How can she like put guns below the table, right? So that's very ridiculous. So that's that's what happened. So 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 those are just some of the instance mm-hmm. examples mm-hmm. of of what's happening to to yes. uh, your friends who are trying to uh, that is, organize. That is very correct. And yeah. so you're uh, traveling around trying to ra- raise people's awareness mm-hmm. about this. So are you worried about you know, when you go home? Actually, that's the reason I can't post pictures that, you know, I've been doing this tour because I'm I'm also scared. I'm all, I also worry. This came out on the June 16. 
Apparently, they're saying that there are like individuals in the U.S. apparently asking support to destabilize the Marcos government. So you're worried because with the Marcos Duterte team now in charge, of- what that might mean for your safety? I think it's going to continue for the longest time since I had taken the role of the president for Bien. I've been extra careful uh, because I know, of course, I'm being targeted with the red tagging. Red tagging entails arrest. It entails death. There's a lot of unionist labor organizers, human rights defender who has actually been killed and there hasn't been any conviction. Anything else you want to say? Um, yeah, I'm just hoping that uh, please be kind to those who you talk on the other end of the line, especially those toll-free numbers, because these are workers you know, that are just trying to survive on a day-to-day basis. That was labor activist Mylene Cabalona talking with us about her efforts to unionize workers in call centers in the Philippines and the dangers involved. Uh, More than a million Filipinos work in these call centers. Uh, It's believed to be the second largest workforce in the Philippines. Our reality check today with our partners at Honolulu Civil Beat looks at the results of an election poll that rolled out this week. Politics and Opinion Editor Chad Blair joins us today. Good morning. Good morning, Catherine. So this is a poll that you did in connection with Hawaii News Now. Uh, What are you looking at today? Well, we ran uh, late last night the results of the GOP primary for governor. You know, as you know, it's a crowded field, 10 people wanting to represent the Republican Party there at the state capitol. And not surprisingly, it's really name recognition that is driving the folks that we surveyed. Duke Iona, who served two terms as lieutenant governor under uh, Linda Lingle, and who also, as you recall, ran twice unsuccessfully for the top job. He's at 27 percent, but not far behind is B.J. Penn, the MMA artist. I mean, he's practically a household name here in Hawaii. He's at 24 percent. But let me caution you here. Because it's such a small pool of registered Republicans are going to vote in the primary, there's a big margin of error of 6%. So that means, really, they're essentially tied. Having said that, I should also say Heidi Sunayoshi. She's on the city council. She's in third place with nine percentage points. And then there's Gary Cordery, of the, formerly of the Aloha Freedom Coalition, and he's at 7%. And then there's a few other candidates that round out the rest of the poll. Well, so you, you mentioned that, uh, yeah, the, the, the um, field... Uh, that you uh, polled well, was very small, but there are also a number of people who are unsure <laughs> of who they're going to vote for, right? Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty high percentage, and I think that's really, uh, really the race is wide open, and they need to appeal to these people that just haven't decided. And uh, remember, in the, the primary here in Hawaii, you can actually vote for any party that you want to, Republican, or Democrat, or Green, or Libertarian. But here's the thing. You can only vote for one of those parties, right? You can't go to the Dems, go to the GOP, and back and forth. Uh, so there is definitely time for people to to change minds. But really, name recognition has put Duke Iona and DJ Penn as the favorites, at least at this at this point. One of the things that's interesting about Penn is he's not speaking a whole lot to the media. I, I, mean, I do want to say he did answer a candidate Q&A for us, but that's a self-written Q&A. 
I tried to reach him yesterday to give him embargoed results, no phone call. Duke Iona, however, did take my phone call. You almost get a sense that there's some in the Republican Party, more traditional, more old school, that are a little worried about the notoriety of someone like B.J. Penn, who is really using social media to get his message out. And, uh, I, you know, there's really there's a concern about his, his past allegations and as well as actual incidents. Could that be harmful if somehow he were to win the primary and then go up against a Democrat in November? Well, you know, besides the uh, governor's uh, race, you folks also hold voters on the lieutenant governor's primary. Right. And this is the Democratic primary specifically. And in this case, once again, unsure, not sure, <laughs> emerged as uh, as the favorite. But it's whopping it's huge in this case. It's 48 percent. Nearly half of the people that we voted or rather that we surveyed, all of them likely voters, the Democratic primary. Sylvia Luke only has 20 percent of the vote, and, and she's actually leading the pack. Ikaika Anderson is just behind at 14 percent, Keith Amamiya at 10 percent, Sherry Menore McNamara at 7 percent. There's a couple of other Democrats in that field. We didn't pull those, but that race, too, is absolutely wide open. Yeah, it's amazing that the, the uncertain votes, uh, so, you know, who knows what could happen, you know, a misstep, and, and these mm. candidates are going to have to work very hard. I think so, too. I think so much of the focus has been on the governor's race in the Democratic Party and also this large field in Republicans. I think TV ads are probably going to make the difference. And, and right now, Sylvia Lucas airing ads. I know Keith Amamiya has something up, Ikaika Anderson. It's going to come down to money, really, right, getting your name out there. But frankly, people like to see people sign-waving. They like to see people uh, going door-to-door if they can. Uh, they want to show that you're hungry, right? <laughs> they want to see that you're hungry and that you're willing to reach out to whatever voter is out there to make their case. And you folks also did some analysis, too, with uh, uh, the support that these candidates have uh, when it comes to gender and age. Mm, yeah. You know, it varies, but we actually include that. If you go to our stories, you will be able to see all the demographic uh, tabulations. And in some cases, things do stand out. Sylvia Luke, for example, does better among Japanese voters, Ikaika Anderson better among Filipino, Hawaiian, Pacific Islanders. And you mentioned age, Duke Iona doing better with folks over 50, BJ Penn with folks under 50. Uh, and that kind of makes sense given their own uh, particular background. Yeah, I happened to be out at the uh, Filipino Fiesta, and it was really fascinating to, to watch all the candidates, you know, from those uh, races kind of lobby, trying to currying, uh, trying to curry the votes. Uh, some had booths, you know, tents set up. Others just uh, uh, popped in to, you know, have their picture taken. Uh, but, yeah, definitely working all the angles in the short time that we have uh, before this primary. Yeah, it's it's very soon. The mail-in mail ballots go out July 26th. So some people will already be voting then, right up until Election Day, August 13th. All right. Well, interesting uh, look uh, at the races. But thank you so much, Chad. Thank you, Catherine. That was Honolulu Civil Beat's editor, Chad Blair, with today's reality check. Uh, to read the stories on the poll, visit civilbeat.org.
Support for HPR comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa. The virtual Will Weinstein Ethics Conversation Series examines business and legal ethics July 12th to August 11th. Scheidler.hawaii.edu slash Weinstein. Each week, New Dimensions explores the social, political, scientific, environmental, and spiritual frontiers with some of today's foremost social innovators, thinkers, scientists, and creative artists. Hi, I'm Dr. Christian De Quincey, author of Blind Spots. Next time on New Dimensions, I'll be talking about how common cliches distort our understanding of science, philosophy, and spirituality. Beginning Sunday morning at 11. Native Hawaiian master builder Francis Palani Sinensi has dedicated his life to revitalizing the traditional art of building thatched houses called Hale. Now he's being honored by the National Endowment of the Arts with the prestigious National Heritage Fellowship. HBR reporter Kuvehiri, she joins us this morning. Hi. Aloha, Catherine. Uh, yes, 79 years old. Uh, Francis Palani Sinensi has, has overseen construction of countless traditional thatched houses or Hale, as you mentioned, in his sort of nearly 30 years uh, of reviving this practice. And it's a tedious job. I joined him out on a build site yesterday in Waianae. And, you know, it includes constructing the wa- the rock wall foundation for the hale, and then lashing the post, and then also the time-consuming actual thatching of, of the house. And over the years, he's come uh, to perfect his technique with types of materials, uh, with the types of materials that he uses and, and the number of helpers. This Hana-born master builder grew up steeped in other traditional practices in, in, uh, on the east side of Maui, like fishing and taro farming. But the art of kukuruhale, or, or traditional Hawaiian construction or an architecture, was not available to him. He kind of recalls the first time learning about Hale back in 1952 uh, when his sixth grade teacher, Mrs. Julia Naone, had told them, you know, you got an assignment, you need a book report, go to the library and find something Hawaiian. Here's Sinensi. And at that time, you could barely find two books about Hawaii. Everything was about run dick, run, see Jane jump, all that. We were totally immersed in Americanism. So... I found this one book, and it was written by Helen Gay Pratt. She had a seat in the Bishop Museum. And one of the things that got me interested was when it came to the post and the uh, fitting, it got my attention because I knew I already knew how to torch by moonlight, plant taro, do all those other things, Hawaiian. But Holly, I was, oh, Holly. So he finished that book report. He's a jokester, if you can, if you can't tell. Uh, he finished the book report, but never thought about it again until the early '90s, when he was a, a Hawaiian studies teacher at Helemano Elementary, and he was asked, you know, can can you try and build this this hale we keep hearing about? And so, with no really existing practitioners at the time to learn from, he delved into research from the Bishop Museum and other anthropologists and, and archaeologists and, and old-fashioned, I want to say, trial and error in trying to figure out how to rebuild these things. He spent some time at the Bishop Museum looking at that one hale that we all know is in, in Hawaiian Hall, sort of dissecting it in his mind. 
And um, Sinensi, you know, estimates he's now built hundreds of traditional hale across the islands, but also around the world. I know he has one in China, for example, and he's restored heiau as well and sort of spearheaded the creation of an indigenous architecture building code. And this was something that early on he realized, like in early 2000s, that, okay, we don't live up to county building code, so we need to change that. And he actually was able to change that on Maui County, and they require things like fire sprinklers and, and nylon cordage, things that he's learned in you know, having a fire himself in one of his hale that needed to be sort of implemented. Um, but now his focus is really on training that next generation of practitioners. He founded his own traditional school, Hale Kukuhi, and, Kuhikuhi, and piloted a hale builder certification program. You know, and figuring out what do these students need to know before I can send them out to build more hale. So uh, he, one of his uh, sort of apprentices, uh, Nana Kuli native Isaiah Kahakaluila Birch, had been studying under Sinensi for three years, and he joined us yesterday out in Hawaii. So part of the hale building process is that there's there's an image of, of pregnancy. You know, and that this is a very ancient hale building philosophy. At the end of the hale, you do this chant called Okikapiko. It means to cut the umbilical cord. And at that point, you name the hale, and it's ready to fulfill its intention. That's another thing that makes hales different, is that they're highly, highly intentional spaces. Yeah, They have a name and a very specific function in this world. So, you know, Kumu is almost consistently pregnant with all of these hales, right? He's, he's hapai with this entire practice, yeah? He has the, this very humongous kuleana of being one of the few people in this world that can still do this thing and still effectively teach it. He sacrifices a lot for it, and, and we all really appreciate him for that. Uh, Kahakawila Birch was uh, interesting. He had said, you know, he'll get a call at 2 a.m., 3 a.m. in the morning because uh, Kumu Palani, as they call him, had an idea about how this hale that they're working on should be built and how they need to change this and that practice. Um, but a big responsibility indeed, and I think that's part of why he is being honored this year uh, by the National Endowment for the Arts and is one of 10 uh, National Heritage Fellows. So he'll get a $25,000 award for that, which he joked he's going to use to buy lunches for all his building <laughs> crews. Um, and, you know, he'll also be featured in a film uh, by the NEA that's set to premiere in November. Well, you know, it's interesting because I had the opportunity to go to the Kona Village Resort where they're, you know, uh, rebuilding right mm-hmm. after the tsunami uh, damage and i happened to look at one of the hallways there and and it wasn't grass it was plastic and oh, i just was thinking oh gosh you know uh, w- what a shame that we can't use the natural material yes and back then but hopefully now uh with kumu Polani's help that will be more of a reality yeah well thank you so much mahalo we've been talking with hbr reporter kuve hiraishi to check out her stories go to our website hawaiipublicradio.org today's backyard quiz we asked you if you knew where dole whip was first created you might think it was created here in hawaii but that would be incorrect the popular frozen treat got its bay in the uh its start in the bay area which is the answer to today's backyard quiz uh back in the 70s and 80s the dole food company was selling vanilla ice cream topped with pineapple in booths scattered 
around Disney World in Florida. The problem was that it kept melting in the heat. In an effort to make something that would withstand summer temperatures, food scientist uh, Kathy Westfall invented the dairy-free fruit-based soft serve at the Dole Technical Center in San Jose, California in 1984. Today, it is served around the world and has developed a cult following among Disney, uh, Disney amusement park fans. And while the original pineapple flavor is best known, eight additional flavors are also sold, which include mango, strawberry and orange and we had no winners today we went splat on that one uh but if you have an idea uh, to share for a talkback question write to talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org Support for HPR comes from the Honolulu Museum of Art, providing art experiences for the community. Learn more about summer art classes and workshops for adults and keiki at honolulumuseum.org. HPR is hiring. Are you looking for a career change? We have several positions for you to consider. We're looking for new team members to organize our broadcast fundraisers and events, crunch numbers, and help our members with a smile. If you love HPR and want to play an important supporting role behind the scenes, apply today. View our job openings online at hawaiipublicradio.org slash jobs. Support for HPR comes from Costco Air Conditioning and Refrigeration, serving Hawaii since 1961, featuring Daikin Air Conditioning Systems. Listing of contractors who install Daikin products at costcohawaii.com. Of something called the men's shed movement well it got its start in australia and the idea is to provide a gathering place to draw people for companionship particularly seniors who can find themselves isolated after retirement but here in hawaii uh, it's not limited to just men or retirees today marks a year since the aloha community shed came to be the conversations Lillian song visited the new space on dillingham boulevard she talked with board treasurer bob jewell about this concept of working shoulder to shoulder with aloha the whole thing with men's shed started about 25 years ago in australia where the australian government saw that they had a problem a major problem with people, particularly men, who are retired or had retired, they're sitting at home doing nothing, they're, they're cut off from their friends, their workmates that they might have had 20 or 30 people they worked with and socialised with every day, and now they're sitting at home. Now, what that brought about was there was physical health issues, mental health issues, depression, suicide, domestic violence. All these things came out of people being just totally isolated. So we're trying to break the isolation and give people a place where they can come, a welcoming place, they can make friends. I personally have made a lot of really good friends in the five years that I've been involved with men's sheds here in Hawaii. And they're friendships that I would never have made otherwise. What is the demographic for you guys? Seniors, retired men or women. We have about 20% of our members at the moment are women. We don't discriminate. As we would say in Australia, black, white or brindle, we don't care. Everyone is welcome. We just want people to participate and 
be able to join in the camaraderie and the projects that we do and the community service stuff that we do. It's just give people something to work towards. We've been here nine weeks and it's been the most hectic nine weeks because everything has just happened at once. Our first birthday is beginning of July and the first eight months was just like, oh my God, nothing's happening, you know, dragging along. And then all of a sudden we got into this place thanks to Kamehameha School's support and it's just all happening. And as you see today, we've just had so much stuff donated to us. And all this equipment has been donated by a company that is downsizing literally everything in their factory they've donated to us. Going to be a great help to get into doing our community service work, building things, all the, the wood materials, tools, all sorts of equipment, even like a table saw that was brought in this morning. Shelving, we're like we can obviously use more shelving. Um, our mission is to be able to bring people back together, camaraderie. Been working with the Rotary Club, Honolulu Sunset Rotary Club, our vice president is a member of. We did a project for the Alloway Elementary School. We were building picnic tables for the kids so that they weren't stuck in classrooms during COVID. They could do their classes outside and under the trees, in the fresh air, which is great anyway, COVID or otherwise. We also did a recent project at the Homeless Veterans place out at Ever Beach, just doing some yard work and fixing a few picnic tables, just helping out there. We've also done some work at the Lanakila Senior Centre, built a nice bench there for their garden, and we're currently working on benches again through the Rotary Club for the Pacific Haven Project, which is up on the North Shore. It's a refuge for trafficked women and children, and we're building picnic benches uh, or garden benches so that people there can just sit out there and enjoy the outdoors. You just pointed to this beautiful park bench. Mm -hmm. Where were the materials? Were they reclaimed wood and how long did it a take to put this together? A lot of it is reclaimed wood. Um, some of it's donated wood. We, we have a number of people that will just come in and donate wood just like you've seen today with us bringing in all sorts of wood. So we haven't bought anything so far for this. We've got one finished there. We have another one in production over there and we have another four to make and it's designed by one of our guys here and that will be donated free of charge. Going up to the Haven? Mm -hmm. Yes, yeah. These are beautiful pine benches. I mean, the design, very elegant and... And they're very comfortable. Come on, check it out. Come on, sit down. <laughs> All right, here, we're going to give it a try right now. <laughs> Beautiful. A lot of thought going into how it looks, but also just how it fits. This is something that is going to be used by the community. It will be used, and that's what we want, is to, to put things back into the community that can be used by the community, not just for show. We want it to, to actually work as well. The other thing that we're building here, we've started doing is these small planter boxes, and we will make those in various sizes. The idea being that a lot of old people they can't get down on the ground to do their gardening that they might want to do. They might be able to get down on the ground, and you being a gardener, you know, getting down's easy, getting back up's not the easiest part. So we're going to be building boxes like this, again, out of reclaimed wood, so really not costing us anything. And what you're looking at there, listeners, you can't see it, but it's uh, pieces of old pallet wood and fence palings. So 
it costs us nothing. Once again, so impressed, standing from my vantage point of looking at the finished planter. This is something that you guys are building here at the shed, mm -hmm. and you have the design. If somebody were to just say, hey, I'm a member of the community, interested in maybe learning how to work with machinery. Come on down, join the shed, and our motto is working shoulder to shoulder with Aloha. So if someone wants to come down and learn how to do this sort of thing, that's the whole premise of us is we will come down, someone knows how to do something and we can share that knowledge and skill with others. Give you an example, some of our members here are really good at wood turning, making all sorts of really cool things. I'm not, but I'm going to learn from them. They're going to share that experience and knowledge with me. So that's what we'll do. We run classes to do that sort of thing. We also have a lady who has just recently joined the shed here and she's a stained glass artist and she's going to be doing classes on how to do stained glass. We also have a number of other members who do quilting. So we're going to have quilting classes. We have members who are musicians. So we won't just have music classes, but we'll have music get-togethers. Like some jams. Yeah, a shed jam, exactly. We we'll just sit around, play some music and just enjoy each other's company. And that's what it's all about, just enjoying each other's company, sharing life skills, sharing life experiences, and just making the most of life. It's exciting that, you know, I'm hearing about these classes, maybe stained glass, even quilting coming down the pipe. Mm -hmm. You've got all this wood machinery that you can have access to. But what is your working model? How do people become involved? Is there a price attached? For the first year of membership, we charge $150. That's a $50 membership plus $100 dues for the year and then $100 every year after that. Now, for people to find out what we're doing, we have a website. It's www.alohacommunityshed.org and we also have a page on Facebook, Aloha Community Shed. We have a lot of information there. You can follow us and get updates on what we're doing. Join our news list and we'll send you our newsletter every month with updates on what we're doing, what we have been doing, what we will be doing, things that we need, our wish list. We have a, one of our members is touring through Ireland at the moment, visiting men's sheds over there. So he's our roving reporter and he's sending little reports back that goes in our newsletter. So we are a global organisation. We're not just a local group. We are a part of the US Men's Shed Association and we're also part of the Global Shed Network. And I'm regularly in contact with shed members from England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales, Poland, Kenya, Australia. We get online and chat and talk about stuff and what we're doing and you know, what we can do to improve our sheds. So although you are physically located here in Dillingham, you have such a global reach, you also yeah. have such a rich DNA. Yeah, it's a global network, literally a global network. But one of the things that has come out of the shed movement and how it affects people's lives in a positive sense, there's a group in the UK, they have what they call Shedison. It's a play on words for medicine and sheds. So the sheds is a great medicine. Like Reader's Digest used to say, laughter is the best medicine. I say sheds are the best medicine. And that was Aloha Community Sheds. Bob Jewell talking with HPR's Lillian Sung.
Shed members have access to woodworking, power tools, and studio space to work on personal or community projects. And as we mentioned, the group is celebrating its first anniversary. Uh, it plans uh, a public birthday bash at some point. We'll share links on our website, hawaiipublicradio.org, later today. Up tomorrow, it's a Hanaho show about poetry. Give us some feedback. What do you think about something you heard on our air this week? Red Hill, tourism. Call our talkback line, 808-792-8217. Email us your comments at talkback at hawaiipublicradio.org. And you can connect with Facebook, too. Join us tomorrow for more of the conversation. 